There will be predictions for 2022, but before that, well, what else, alas? More Ukraine. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Let me just start with something that some unkind listeners would think is a naked plug for my new book, The Weaponization of Everything, which is incidentally out in the UK now. Amazon sold out in one day, but more copies are on the way and will be coming out both in audiobook form and also in the United States and the rest of the world on the 15th of February. Anyway, a basic element of the thesis of the book is that war has become... Not impossible to wage, but so ridiculously expensive in financial, but also political, social and diplomatic terms, that it is much less likely to be a preferred option. And a question that I've been asked a couple of times, I think is an entirely legitimate one, is doesn't what we're seeing playing out currently on the borders of Ukraine invalidate that thesis? I mean, this seems to be very definitely a case of the use of force. I would argue, aha, no, quite the opposite. I think in many ways it actually helps explicate it. Think about it, we have what, well, according to different sources, 100,000 plus troops, or at least the structures for troops, around Ukraine's borders and the constant drumbeat of potential war happening any day. Imminent is, of course, the, the buzzword at the moment. More on that in a moment. But the point is, they're not actually crossing the border at the moment. What we have seen is the use of these forces really as an instrument of what I've elsewhere called heavy metal diplomacy. In other words, a particularly blunt kind of coercive diplomacy with the threat of military action. But meanwhile, Ukraine has been subject to the whole panoply of non-military forms of attack. We have seen cyber hacks, we have seen economic pressure, we have seen all kinds of different disinformation campaigns, we've seen attempts at subversion, and on the list goes. Actually, what is happening is the Kremlin is trying everything but actual outright war. And it is clear, look, I mean, for those who think that actually war is inevitable and that it was always inevitable, well, I can't help but think that if in fact that had been the plan, We wouldn't have had quite such a lengthy build-up. We wouldn't have had the current negotiations going on as far as they can. You know, if all you want is a pretext, there's a lot easier ways of doing it. No, I think this is clear, that although absolutely war is still an option, well, I say war, escalation, because there's already a war in the Donbass, but the point is, almost from Putin's point of view, he's hoping that he doesn't have to use it. Even from his point of view, even from the fact of you know, an autocrat who has you know, considerable control, not, not absolute control, over the domestic media environment, who can rig elections as he pleases, and who can, if need be, unleash forces that would not be able to control and pacify the Ukraine, but could absolutely shatter the Ukrainian armed forces as a force in being on the battlefield. He has all those opportunities, all those capacities, and yet he's still trying to do everything but to get his own way. So for me, in many ways, this is precisely an example of the thesis that I put out in the book, which is precisely that, in fact, the majority of conflicts we are seeing between countries, and we will continue to see between countries, will be fought out essentially through non-military means, which may well still lead to deaths. People die from propaganda, people die from hacks on hospital systems, people die just simply because economic sanctions mean there isn't money and that money isn't being spent on, again, healthcare or or whatever else. No, it's not entirely bloodless, but it is not fought on the battlefield, it is fought through the battlefield, shall we say, of interdependence and our capacities to mess with each other. But anyway, I will stop there before this goes too much into a a commercial for the book. Wonderful book, though it is. Please do go out and buy it. And if you're in the States, pre-order it. So Amazon.com know to actually have a suitable number in stock. And now let me move on to, again, talking about the 
the crisis of the moment on the Ukrainian border. And I think an interesting way of framing this whole issue is there was a post on the anonymous uh, channel Nyazigar on Telegram, which is a splendid source for all kinds of interesting analysis and totally scurrilous gossip and, at the moment, some deeply weird and conspiratorial histories about the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but in nonetheless, you know, it, it is one of these places where you see all kinds of nuggets of gold in amidst the dross and the gravel. And there was this post that actually sort of said, Moscow, with all the costs of the global Russia-West crisis, has gained at least five benefits. And I thought, OK, fine, that gives me an interesting way of framing a bit of discussion about where we're at at the moment, and also gives a sense of how a often mischievous but not uninformed Russian observer, whoever is writing this, um, believes Moscow is gaining. So let me go through the five and discuss each in turn. The first one is this. The Western world is again in direct negotiations with Russia. Putin and Moscow are again setting the world agenda and there have been resumed summits of powers. Yes, that's perfectly true, and it's not wholly to be discounted, in my opinion. But just simply the fact that there are these summits and such is not going to be enough in and of itself. It's not going to resolve the crisis, and it's not going to satisfy the Kremlin as such. It's absolutely great that talking is happening, and that Russia clearly still thinks it's worth continuing the dialogue. I mean, that's what really scares me, is that if it decides that, no, there's no way we can possibly get anything that will matter to us, through this conversation, that's when they think, well, we have to find some other way of breaking the logjam. And that, unfortunately, may well be military escalation. But as I said, I mean, just simply having talks, although it's important, not least as a way of us beginning to get a, a real sense of what Putin's appetite for risk may be and what he's willing to accept, as I say, it's not in and of it, in, enough in and of itself. We will need, like it or not, to find some way of addressing the Kremlin's genuinely held security concerns. And again, let me just dwell for a moment on that. There is much that the Kremlin says through its official channels and its you know, other ways of, of communicating that is absolute batshit nonsense. That's, that's a given. However, it does not mean that everything they say is entirely without foundation. Like it or not, the Kremlin does feel that it does, it faces a risk from NATO. It's no point just simply saying, oh, no, 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 NATO is a defensive alliance. Firstly, that's going to not going to mollify the Kremlin. And secondly, they are going to point to the fact that actually NATO has been involved in offensive military operations. Quite possibly things that ought to be done, but nonetheless, it has been there. It has been bombing, whether it's in former Yugoslavia, whether it's been Afghanis in Afghanistan. Indeed, one could talk about what happened in Libya. You know, for all these reasons, just simply saying that you shouldn't have these fears is not going to change how the Kremlin thinks about it. And also that they do regard themselves as having been, in a way, attacked covertly through destabilisation and subversion. Again, we may not think that is true. We may not think that, for example, the open support that's been given to Navalny and his movement, other people who have been uncovering misdeeds of the Russian state counts as subversion. And that's fine. And personally, I'm, I'm glad that we did those things. But we also have to recognise that as far as the Kremlin is concerned, this is also hybrid warfare. This is also attempts to destabilise a regime because the West doesn't like it. So there has to be something there that makes the Kremlin feel more comfortable at the end. That does not, I really should stress, mean just simply rolling over and giving it everything it needs or claims to need. But nonetheless, it means there is something. There's no point just simply saying, we will give you absolutely nothing. If we do that, we, we, we push Putin into a corner, of which, again, more anon. So yes, this might mean, for example, discussions about intermediate-range nuclear forces, which is something that, that the Americans have been pushing as, as an area in which, which there is room for discussion. And... That's, that's something that, that can be part of, but I would stress that, part of any solution. And beyond that, well, obviously the key issue is Ukraine. And I can totally understand why it's right and proper that Ukraine does not get just cast adrift, and that the guarantees about Ukrainian membership of NATO are not just simply withdrawn. But on the other hand, first of all, again, 
you know, as everyone who is willing to talk about this realistically knows that that's not going to happen for a long, long time. And it may be that although there can be no guarantees about Ukraine not joining NATO, what there can be is guarantees about foreign forces and foreign security infrastructure not being placed on Ukrainian soil. Because this is something that Putin seems genuinely concerned about. You know, he's concerned about not so much Ukraine, but the fact that Western NATO missiles and bases could be on Ukrainian soil. So, you know, maybe the areas like that can, can be sort of teased out as a way of, in effect, sweetening the bitter pill, which is to acknowledge that Ukraine is lost to Russia and Russia's sphere of influence. As I said, so, you know, it's the start of the process. It's fine to say it's great that there are now direct negotiations. But first of all, this is not just about Russia and the United States. You know, the United States is going to have to make sure that it is essentially speaking as the representative of the West, not a leader. And secondly, we still have to get to the, the actual meat of it. So the next benefit for Moscow, as far as Nyazigar is concerned, is the United States and Russia are likely to return to the negotiation process on the limitations and non-deployment of nuclear weapons and conventional weapons, which will reduce costs and redirect funds to the development of new technologies. Well, OK, and yes, indeed, this is, as I said, an area that the United States has definitely been, been stressing. But again, it's, it's not enough. If Putin had just wanted to get the United States talking again about the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, from which the United States withdrew under Trump, I suspect he would have had, if not an open door, but at least a partially ajar one after Biden's election. Sure, Russia had been, if not breaking, at least folding, spindling and mutilating the treaty beforehand with its missile programme. And also, in any case, the United States was also looking to China, which is not a signatory of the INF Treaty, and where it felt that it may well need potentially deterrent forces there because of the Chinese intermediate range nuclear program. But dealing with all this is not necessarily beyond the wit of mortal man and woman. They can work through this, especially as, again entirely tacitly it's worth mentioning, Moscow also regards intermediate range nuclear forces as someday being a potential issue with Beijing. It's really fascinating how in terms of long-term military planning, the China factor is something that so many within the Russian military security sector acknowledge has to be a piece, and yet it's not something at the moment anyone can openly discuss. But so it goes. Benefit number three. Ukraine has partially lost in the eyes of the Western world the status of a political entity that is not capable of resolving the crisis on its own by which I presume Nizigar is getting at the idea that actually Ukraine should be making concessions and applying the Minsk II or Steinmeier formula in ways that, that, that Russia would like to see. Anyway, it continues. The status of Zelensky and his team have received a serious reputational and political blow. Zelensky tried to purge his opponents and the confidence of Moscow, but he himself received a hit as a result. It is quite interesting, alarming and rather depressing to see the open dispute that we're now seeing between Washington and Kiev, with the Americans not hiding their dissatisfaction that the Ukrainians are not sort of on message, their message. Now, rightly or wrongly, if the aim is to avert escalation rather than to use a war scare as a political distraction, <coughs> Boris Johnson, <coughs> and to bludgeon recalcitrant allies into line, which is also something that we're definitely, frankly, seeing from the United States. Well, then, a great, it's a great virtue, I would suggest, in not being too inflammatory or alarmist. And the Ukrainians, in fairness, they are on the front line. So I think one ought to have a little bit of humility before basically telling them how wrong they are. Politico had a splendid, and I really do hope that people detect their sarcasm there, yanksplainer of a piece that said that Zelensky's problem was that in Ukrainian, the word imminent that keeps being used for the um, notional Russian attack has the implication of inevitable. And that's why Zelensky's pushing back. Oh, bless those poor benighted little Ukrainians. What a shame that the Ukrainian government has no good English speakers who could have avoided this gaffe because, you know, after all, 
it couldn't possibly be that Zelensky simply doesn't want to fan the flames or indeed doesn't buy the US interpretation of their intelligence. Let's be very honest, there are serious grounds for caution about some of the rhetoric that we're hearing. Imminent. War has been imminent since November. What, what does actually therefore imminent mean? Now imminent means it's going to happen in February. I mean, at one point it was this notion that, oh, we're just waiting for the, the ground to freeze. Because after all, as we know, the Russian military could not possibly operate in anything other than optimal conditions and can't possibly cope with mud. Um, I'm a little bit minded of the uh, two would-be Skripal assassins whose first trip to Salisbury had been aborted because there was too much snow. Anyway, so yes, first of all, we don't actually know what, what imminent means. And we really... Sh oh, how can I put this? Well, my, my apologies to all people within the US intelligence community who might be listening to this, but we have to treat what we are told about the interpretation that is coming from US intelligence sources with a considerable degree of caution. Not because they're all fools or liars or anything like that, but simply because I will presume that the leaks that have happened are controlled and intentional leaks. In other words, they're not just some disgruntled intelligence analyst in Langley who happens to know someone from the Washington Post or whatever and lets slip some deep truths. Because if so, I mean, that, that sounds like treason to me. No, I mean, the fact that there is such a constant stream of intelligence materials making it into the Times and the Post makes it fairly clear that this is actually the use of curated intelligence materials as a political instrument to frame the debate. And you know, that happens. Let's be honest about that. But that's the whole point. These are politically curated intelligence materials or interpretations or just simply reports on what intelligence materials say. And one particular thing we've been told is that these intelligence sources are saying that both Zelensky and Putin are either being misled or out of touch with the realities. You know, first of all, this idea, for example, that Zelensky is not taking the opinions of his security apparatus seriously. And that explains why he's wrong, the implication is, in terms of the scale of the Russian threat. Well, look, the job of the elected political leadership of a country in a democracy is to lead. It's to consider the assessments and opinions of the spooks and the generals absolutely, but not to defer to them, not to actually allow them to drive policy. And that's particularly in the light of, you know, we have to consider the evident political tensions, which we've seen there, you know, even before this current crisis, between Zelensky and the security apparatus, and the suggestions that the latter were actively trying to undermine him. It's actually, I'll be honest, for me, really quite uncomfortable that the United States seems willing to side with the spooks against the elected president. Now, on Putin, we're being told that he is either being informed or misinformed about the costs of military escalation or that he is just simply underestimating them. Now, this may well be true. To be honest, it's my really big concern. Putin is a rational actor. But on the other hand, rational actors can still do really, really dangerously stupid things if it's on the basis of inaccurate or only partial data. So, yeah, for me, this is a serious issue. I'm struck by this very confident, unambiguous assertion that that is the case. Does the United States really have the kind of access to know that, to be able to assert it without any caveats or doubts? Now, that would imply exceedingly high-level human or technical access to Putin's inner circle which in turn means either that this is a revelation which actually would be seriously jeopardising sources and methods, you know, basically tipping off Russia's rather carnivorous counterintelligence apparatus that there is a leak to identify, or maybe could I even just suggest that this is actually just simply an assumption being spun as fact. Cynical, I know, but there you go. Moving on. Then we have the, the fourth benefit, and I'll be honest, this is one where I've definitely put inverted commas around benefit. And that is, the issue of Moscow's status as a guarantor of the interests of Russian citizens on the territory of the Lugansk and Donbass People's Republic is being reconsidered. 
And consequently, so too is the issue of the entry of the pseudo-states, that's my term, South Ossetia and Abkhazia into the Union State of Russia, Belarus. Well, that's a benefit. Look, recognition of the Donbass and Lugansk pseudo-states is absolutely currently still being considered and certainly being publicly discussed, as I mentioned in my previous podcast. But also, I think it's worth stressing that this is not something that could be considered to be a victory for Moscow. Again, if they'd wanted to do that in 2015, if they'd wanted to do that in 2016 or 2019, whenever, they could have done that. They can do that at any point they want. They did not do that precisely because they're not interested in the Donbass. This is not actually a territory which in and of itself has any particular value. And the idea that they're doing this just in order to protect the, the rights of the poor Russian-speaking minority, I mean, that's nonsense. That's something that they just mobilise for political purpose. No, the value of this region was precisely because they wanted to use it as a lever against Kiev, and they wanted it reintegrated into the Ukrainian system with the kind of powers, autonomy and guarantees which would ensure that Moscow would have some kind of, if not a veto, but certainly a powerful voice within Ukrainian governance. To give that up is entirely possible and it may well be that it's actually a wholly um, impractical and unattainable goal. But if they do that, it will be a defeat. But the crucial thing is it, it is a defeat that could possibly be spun as success, at least at home. As an so example of, look, you know, we, we ultimately had to do this. It wasn't our first choice. We'd, we'd rather Ukraine maintain its territorial um, sovereignty. But nonetheless, it's clear that Kiev and its Western puppet masters are not willing to play ball. And therefore, this is the only thing we could do because we stand up for our people. So, you know, one can see the script that, that, that could easily be brought together. But further to my thoughts on this in the, the previous podcast, I was contemplating this and I'm wondering if actually also the discussion that is happening at the moment within Moscow about this as an option which is not just simply a way of kind of signalling this possibility to the outside world, but may well also be signalling to the Kremlin. Whether it's actually part of the very real behind-the-scenes debate that is taking place in Moscow about where do we go from here. I mean, it's quite interesting because we're seeing kind of more liberal uh, voices sort of basically talking, wanting to talk down the escalation prospects, Others saying, well, actually, this is a chance for, for Moscow to dream big and be really aggressive. I mean, you know, again, there is a debate happening. And it's one of these weird debates, very, very similar that we've seen before, about how you try and influence the Kremlin when the Kremlin isn't letting on what it wants. Is you, you cast your thoughts and ideas out into the ether and you hope it grabs the attention of someone higher up the, uh, the, the political process who in turn maybe can use it to influence Putin or whatever. Maybe this is actually being laid out as a potential escape route. Maybe precisely it's being talked up as a way of saying, look, if we're not going to get what we want from any negotiations, this is something that you can still do and demonstrate purpose and activity and dynamism and all these other things that we know that, that Putin's political managers like to portray for him without actually having to launch the kind of military escalation that would then have disastrous impacts more, more broadly. So that's, that's one thing that actually this may be. This actually may be just simply people trying to give an option to a president whom they see as being out on a ledge, and then actually saying, there is an open window. You could still walk back through that. We'll have to wait and see. And finally... Russia and the United States are interested in joint actions in the field of cybersecurity, taking into account the global internet and new communication technologies. Therefore, the parties need confidential dialogue and rules of the game. Well, look, that's perfectly true. And in fact, interestingly, we recently saw the Russians arresting alleged members of the R-Evil group, which carried out a whole series of, you know, aggressive ransomware attacks in the United States and which actually the United States had wanted to see and crack down on. So, you know, interestingly, even in the midst of this crisis, there can be the occasional positive signs. But again, look, this is not really a core issue. And this is not necessarily something which should be regarded as a particular gift or concession to the West. 
The Russians want a cybersecurity treaty for a number of reasons. In part, they want to be seen to be the good guys when they're generally seen as a source of malign and hostile cyber attacks. Secondly, they want to be in a position to be able to define any kind of cybersecurity treaty that is developed under the auspices of the United Nations. You know, you need to be at the room and round the table for that. And thirdly, they themselves are actually taking cybersecurity much more seriously of late. It's worth noting there has been a major increase in attacks on Russian companies and Russian sites. And in part, that simply reflects the fact that Russia has been through and continues to go through a very, very dramatic expansion in the use of the internet, the use of things like you mean, in online banking and, and other sort of online services, which basically means that there are opportunities and money there. And so they're getting attacked by, by Russians, by Westerners, and again, actually increasingly by Chinese hackers. But again, <clears throat> we don't talk about that too much. So actually, you know, this is, this is also something that is very much in, in Russia's interest. And so fine, maybe there is scope for some kind of a treaty. But let's not pretend that any progress on cybersecurity will have some major impact on the wider crisis. So overall, I mean, I felt that this, this uh, Nizigar post was a, a slightly desperate attempt to try and spin the current crisis positively from, from Russia's point of view, and not always that convincingly, which again speaks to the fact that there is a substantial constituency within the Russian political, chattering, pundit classes who are quite frankly uncomfortable with the way things are going. We shouldn't assume that all the worries and all the concerns are on our side by any means. But let me make some final points. First of all, look, let's recognise that the Minsk process is essentially dead. This is something I've been banging on about for some time and actually you know, wrote a piece for the Council on Geostrategy sort of saying, well, maybe it's, it's outside countries that weren't directly signatories that really should be emphasising this point. I'll leave a link in the programme notes as is usual. On the other hand, the Normandy process, which generated Minsk, which brings together Ukraine, Russia, Germany and France, is at least notionally alive. They're going to be meeting soon. And there is the chance that they could actually generate a new process, a new peace process, a new process of discussions. Minsk, well, Ukrainians have made it clear that they wouldn't be going to Minsk anymore. But on the other hand, Turkish President Erdogan has offered to, to broker some talks. So maybe, well, we now get an Istanbul or an Ankara process. The key question is, though, is Moscow going to continue to seek effective dominance of Ukraine? which means forcing the pseudo-states back into Ukraine? Or is it going to accept that that, as a gambit, hasn't worked, because it hasn't worked for the last seven years, eight years, and accept, at least for the moment, effective neutrality on the part of Ukraine? After all, there's no problem with permitting the idea that Ukraine can seek membership of NATO, so long as it never actually achieves it. Second point. We've seen the much-touted, unprecedented sanctions that the West was going to level against Russia if it escalated already being pared down. For example, at the moment at least, it seems that uh, kicking Russia off the swift interbank communication system is off the table, for, for frankly very good reasons. And I'm wondering whether or not a, a growing Western awareness that economic sanctions are absolutely a very real factor in Russian calculations, but by no means the kind of uh, game-changing Wunderwaffe, wonder weapon, that they had perhaps at one point thought, or at least claimed to think. Will that encourage more realism on the part of the West or more aggression? That's something that we still haven't seen. Instead, what we're seeing is, I mean, everyone suddenly me-tooing on providing weapons to Ukraine and forces for NATO's eastern flank. Now, the weapons, I mean, they're an important symbol of political support. And yes, they will absolutely have some impact on the battlefield if, God forbid, anything actually happens. But again, we should realise they are not a game changer. Just simply providing weapons and helmets and field hospitals and anything else actually is not going to dramatically change the algorithms of power on the ground. And as regards adding more forces to NATO's eastern flank, well... To me, that's actually pretty pointless security theatre. It's about reassurance for the Allies in question if they need it. It's about demonstrating to your own public that you are being serious. But 
given that Moscow is not about to invade the NATO space, then, well, what, what's the big deal? And so on one level, fine, do it by all means. Hey, anything that actually sees NATO forces interacting, interoperating and training with fellow NATO forces is, is no bad thing. And it demonstrates that NATO is a real structure. But my concern is, as ever, that these kind of essentially token actions can prove to be a substitute for anything more substantive or productive. So again, we're going to have to wait and see on that one. And sort of final major point that I would want to talk about is this notion that there's traps being laid. From some Russian and other analysts, we're getting this notion that actually it's the United States that is trapping Moscow. In effect, putting it in a position where it'll either have to go big or go home. Escalate or surrender. Now, if that is indeed what the American intent is, and I, I, I honestly don't know, and I really do hope not, because it is a bloody stupid tactic. If truly challenged, Putin, who has made it clear after all that he feels that it was Gorbachev's weakness, as he sees it, that was the crucial factor behind the Soviet Union's disintegration and all the consequences of problems and uh, diminution in Russia's status that followed, well, I can't see Putin doing anything other than escalating. Remember, he can survive escalation, unless there's a deeply stupid one that tries to, I don't know, take all of Ukraine or whatever. But, you know, certainly anything short of that, he can, he can if need be, he can survive the sanctions and the opprobrium and such like. But to not do so in those, those circumstances, I suspect, would seriously hit his political status, but also his self-image. And I'm honestly not sure which of those two would be more important his notion of himself and his historic legacy, and also a sense that if he did back down with nothing to show for it, having been clearly outmaneuvered and out, I'm trying to think of the word, not bluffed, outdetermined, outwilled by the West, I mean, I think that, that really would, would be quite a serious challenge to him. But then again, there's also the suggestion that Russia is trapping the United States. You know, this way, by building up its forces and by allowing all kinds of, sort of bellicose fantasies to propagate, you get America to negotiate. But also, you goad America into these increasingly apocalyptic warnings. And the thing is, then you can do absolutely nothing. You know, at what point do constant claims of imminent conflict that don't happen begin to become a derisive meme? At what point does it begin to sound like you are indeed the boy crying wolf? And eventually the Russians could scale down their forces, maybe even quietly consolidate their position in Ukraine, and bemusedly and disingenuously wonder what all the fuss was about, while at the same time collecting on whatever compromises and political capital they managed to accrue, and also having given their military a serious exercise in mass mobilisation. Now, this last is the most optimistic possible interpretation. I would love to believe it's true. I can hope. I honestly don't think that Russia is as effectively Machiavellian as that. And I still think that we're in a position where there is maybe a 30% chance of escalation, a 70% chance not. But we'll see. But you know what bugs me? And this is the last thing I'll say on this section. You know, what really bugs me is that if this doesn't lead to war, and obviously heaven forfend that it does, all the hawks for whom it's inevitable and just a matter of time will likely not admit that they were wrong, but instead pivot effortlessly into crowing about the victory of Western deterrent capability. Ah well, such is the nature of our business. And speaking of predictions, after the break, let me tackle the first of a series of requests for Mystic Mark's predictions for what we're going to see in 2022. Back in a moment. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. 
So, I asked people to send in requests for predictions specifically for 2022, with the understanding that A, I would try and be as specific as possible in my responses, so nothing that are so generic as to be inevitably accurate, like there will be turbulence in Russian domestic politics, and B, that at the end of this year, I will have a segment or a podcast in which I look at uh, how it played out and where and if I was wrong, why I think I was. So today for this segment, and first of, of at least two, I've got four questions that actually all came from patrons, because of course patrons get precedence. So the first question is this, is 2022 going to be Surkov's comeback year, or is he gone for good? It's interesting that actually it's really quite hard to find particularly good cases of comeback kids in modern Russian politics. And I don't think that the uh, situation is likely to change for Surkov, especially because the political climate has changed so much. You know, if we think back, you know, Surkov was the consummate political impresario who precisely saw politics as dramaturgia, as a, an essentially theatrical event, and therefore the, hence the creation of the sort of fake politics whereby you have multiple parties, but essentially the Kremlin was the the scriptwriter, the director, and the choreographer all at once. And to an extent, this, this worked, but it was also, you know, I think it's fair to say, an example of Surkov being too, too smart for his own good. Now we have really have seen a situation in which, in this increasingly authoritarian turn of late Putinism, the, the, the pretense is getting thinner, and the real scope for the kind of dramatic soap opera politics that, that Surkov stood for, I think, is gone. And I don't therefore see, he, see him coming back. I don't see a role for him, quite frankly. I mean, when they tried to make him curator of the conflict in Donbass, it really didn't work out well, because exactly he was a fish so totally out of water. So I think in the circumstances, from his point of view, there is no more water left for him. He will continue, I think, to, to be a, a gleefully disruptive occasional essayist with, with some sort of odd essays to intrigue and frustrate Western Kremlin watchers. But no, I don't think we're going to see Surkov's comeback. And I, I don't even know if he wants it. I imagine he's probably enjoying his time, making some money and no longer being in the political front line. Second issue which is essentially whether or not, I mean, the broad question is whether or not the, the nationalities issue will be the death of Russia, but you know, clearly that's not going to happen in the next few months. But more specifically, in 2022, will the Kremlin move to be appeasing Russian nationalists or instead to accommodate non-Russian minorities? Well, I, I very much feel the latter. Um, I think actually we have to acknowledge that to an extent in Soviet, but certainly in Putin's times, actually the integration of the nationalities has been one of the success stories of this particular state. And what I think is really interesting is that, you know, although we think of, and in many ways it is the case, that Russian nationalism is very closely tied to the Russian Orthodox Church, it's managed to become associated with the Russian Orthodox Church without, on the other hand, letting the church define and constrain it. Russian nationhood could be thought of as, to extend the metaphor, a very broad church. That there is absolutely room for different cultures and indeed different religions. And what I thought was quite interesting, because we, we recently saw this case in which, because of the new law on, on local power, that the elected leaders of constituent regions and republics within the Russian Federation were no longer allowed to call themselves president. Now, the person whom this actually impacted was Minikhanov, the head of Tatarstan. And he tried to push back, and his legislature tried to push back, and ultimately they, they failed. But what really struck me was that in the debate over this, and indeed particularly when you had the, both the Kremlin and the, sort of the, the bulk of the legislature not willing to, to give ground on this, what was really striking was actually that there was no serious national angle. That in fact this was regarded purely as an administrative issue which is being dealt with as such, without getting people making snide comments about the Tatars getting too big for their boots or anything like that. Which again, you know, either means that actually 
they have internalized that, that, that nationality is not a, a crucial fault line within the Russian Federation, or at least their political managers are keen enough to try and ensure that it doesn't become such a, a, a wedge issue, fault line, call it what you will, that they, they make damn sure that they maintain message control. So that's, I think, sort of quite an encouraging sign. And at the same time, I mean, it, it is clear that although you know, there are all kinds of unpleasant manifestations of ultranationalism, um, and indeed that the state itself, in terms of its foreign policy, is exceedingly nationalist. But nonetheless, the Russian nationalists, the, the ones who move beyond just simply being proud patriots, but into also being you know, ethno-nationalists, bigots and the like, I mean, they are kept under control. There is a regular toll of arrests and disruption operations carried out by the Federal Security Service, for example. And therefore, you know, again, it is clear that the Kremlin regards this as important. The only real exception is obviously the North Caucasus and how that as a region is conceptualised and how the people from the North Caucasus are considered. It was quite interesting that there was a suggestion that when Putin goes, sort of someone made that when, when Putin goes, there will be a bloodletting in Moscow because of the, the presence of arrogant and violent Chechen business political gangster communities. And the interesting thing is that, that can be interpreted as one of two ways, either that they themselves will no longer be controlled without Putin and his influence over Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, or indeed, and this is actually the one that I would favour as an interpretation, not as a policy, is that actually without Putin to in effect protect the Chechens, that their enemies, which range from the security apparatus all the way through to ethnic Slavic gangsters, will instead be unleashed and will basically wipe them out. I don't know what's going to happen there. But the point is, what this means for 2022 is actually, and again, I'm, I apologise, but this is unfortunately the, the best answer I can give, I don't think anything particularly will happen on the nationality issue in, in grand terms. Quite the opposite. I think what we will do is see continued attempts to maintain this equilibrium. But this is still to a degree hostage to what happens in the North Caucasus. And obviously also Putin's relationship with, with Ramzan Kadyrov. I don't think that, that relationship is going to change, but obviously it depends on whether or not anything happens to either of them. But barring some, some major destabilisation, I think we're going to see business as usual, which is the most boring but often the most honest kind of prediction to make. Third question. If Finland or Sweden join or at least start the process to join NATO, how will Russia react? Well, if this happens... We're obviously going to see all kinds of sound and fury. Um, this is going to be proof that NATO is expansionist. This is going to be entirely unnecessary. This is either going to be proof that um, the Scandinavian countries have been suborned by the United States, or maybe that they're actually just simply being lent on and forced to do this. But anyway, there, so there'll be lots of rhetoric. We will probably see the, the Northern Fleet interestingly um, is, is unique for a Russian fleet in being a kind of a, a joint strategic command in its own right. I mean, elsewhere, the fleets are subordinated to military districts. A little bit of military wonkery. But what that means is, in a way, the Northern Fleet is, in effect, a military district in its own right. And given that it is one of the obvious ones for kind of th potentially threatening both of these countries, we'll probably see it both um, very sort of symbolically acquire some new kit particularly things that are like ships that can launch caliber long-range cruise missiles, and also conduct exercises that are clearly of hostile intent. Meanwhile, in the Baltic region, again, we'll probably see the, the classic Russian response to when it's sort of annoyed in the region, which is missile deployments to Kaliningrad. And this links also actually to the talk about INF treaty. I mean, you know, it could well be that, they'll, that the Russians will very pointedly start putting nuclear missiles in Kaliningrad. Again, not that they're going to be used. Don't worry about that. But again, as, as symbolic rebuke. But this is it. This is all going to be symbolic. To a large extent, I think that Moscow has already in some ways factored in that Finland and Sweden, while they're not NATO members, are kind of semi-detached members. In practice, you know, if, and again, if, there's absolutely no reason for this to happen, but if, let's say, Russia did invade Finland, well... Sweden would join in, and frankly, I think NATO would join in too, because this is about uh, you know crucial 
flank of NATO, and it, it would feel what its own security interests were very much at stake. So I think, you know, for a long time, the Russians have, in terms of security planning, but also in terms of diplomatic thinking, really regarded these countries as being in effect within that. And because there is no deep cultural resonance here, I mean, okay, Grand Duchy of Finland was part of the Russian Empire between uh, 1809 and 1917, but still, it's not like Ukraine. And likewise, Sweden has a long history as an antagonist. And again, we probably would, would, would see lots of people ransacking the history books for evidence of Sweden's historic dislike uh, of Russia. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, in practice, if one really sort of pairs away the loud rhetoric here, maybe the, the expulsion of a diplomat there, basically nothing will happen. And finally, I was asked if the full extent of Russian meddling in the American 2018 election, which is apparently meant to come out in the context of the upcoming congressional hearings about Trump, um, meddling which, in the words of the questioner, could be much or could be little. But either way, you know, if it leads, would it lead to more sanctions and what would be the impact of that? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I obviously don't really want to comment on American politics because I don't know enough about it. Very much depends on, how can I put this, how honest and accurate said hearings and the final report is. Because look, I really don't think they will find that there was much particular support for Trump or active meddling in the elections. You know, by that point, I mean, frankly, even right at the beginning of the Trump presidency, there was deep scepticism about him in Moscow. But certainly by that point, they, they felt that there was really nothing to be gained from him. And indeed, they actually saw some scope for engagement with a Biden presidency. There was definitely that sense that this is not someone like Hillary Clinton, whom we think is implacably opposed to us, but instead is a grown-up with whom we can negotiate. Now, that doesn't mean to say that they weren't at all involved in the elections, but what this does mean is it reflects a wider strategy, which is, and we've seen this in Europe as well, that they have moved away from any grandiose notions that they can actually seriously influence elections. They actually have really no track record of success in doing that. Instead, though, they seek to magnify the inevitable disruption and division that elections generate. I mean, look, elections are in and of themselves intrinsically divisive. That's in many ways the point. So what they instead seek to do is simply magnify that, which tends to mean... Um, amplifying voices of disruptive and radical forces on every, I'd say, end of the spectrum, but actually this tends to be more of a three-dimensional uh, array of different forces. So that's, you know, they, they clearly had a role there. I don't think it was particularly extensive. I don't think that it was intended to elect any particular candidate, but we'll have to see what, what the outcome of congressional hearings might be. But so what? You know, this is actually looking at impact. Well, I cannot see that this can lead to any kind of particularly meaningful sanctions, especially in, in the current context. You know, we're talking about the, the chance that there will be the sort of massive systemic sanctions resulting from an escalation of war in Ukraine. In that context, seriously, what else is left for you to sanction? So I think any sanctions are likely to be personal. They're about specific individuals who are deemed to have been involved, whether it's in terms of uh, initiating, supporting or taking part in any particular Russian political operations. And look, these personal sanctions, they, they perform a role. I mean, fine, by all, by all means, you, you want to strike back at people who have been messing with you, go for it. I think that's really what, state, what states do. And it's not that I, on the whole, would be wishing to stand up for the kind of people who get sanctioned. But let's be absolutely honest about it. This has no impact on policy. It doesn't matter whom you sanction as an individual, even as some people have been suggesting Putin himself. This is not going to change policy. Putin himself is not dependent on monies he may have outside the country or anything like that. I'm very sceptical about these notions of, sort of huge wealth that he really cares about. I mean, his wealth is his political power. And as regards everyone else, well, I think, again, from Putin's point of view, I suspect that the view is, look, you know, we've been at political war with the, with the West for how long? And you're still keeping your money out there? And now part of it has been locked away? Well, sucks to be you. 
serves you right for actually not bringing the money back to the motherland, as I have been requesting. So, no, it doesn't matter whom you sanction. This is not going to change policy in, in, in Moscow. The time that that might have been a sort of factor has long since gone. But nonetheless, the thing about these personal sanctions is they allow you to feel like you're doing something. They allow you to feel like you're tough. You can tell your constituency that you didn't take this lying down. And so in that respect, I think it's an entirely good thing. Again, it allows people to act without doing anything that's going to further destabilise the political situation. Now, I can't help feeling that all of these predictions of mine have been actually very beige. And in the main, they've, they've sort of come down to, eh, well, nothing much, probably. Clearly, the biggest prediction would be what the hell is going to happen on the Ukrainian border. And anyone who tells you they know, anyone who tells you that war is inevitable or that war is impossible, don't believe them. Because none of us really know. Even Putin probably still doesn't know for sure how this is, how he wants it to play out, let alone whether it actually will play out the way he wants it to. We are all in this respect subject to the whims of, of fate and the interactions of often rather stupid states. But anyway, if other people have other sort of things that they want me to predict about, again, which, which would lend themselves to a very clear and sharp and specific prediction for 2022, well, there is still time. But in the meantime, I think I'm all predictioned out. So thank you very much, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Pожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.